This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary, even in hell. Get back! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! They all flow down here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you Welcome to Cinema Degeneration. This is a new show we're doing now. It's called like Creature Feature Dinner Theater. Uh, mixing up something a little bit different where we review a movie and make a special meal or a special drink to go along with the theme of the film. Uh, joining me this week, I am your, well, I am your host, Cameron Scott, and joining me this week is my lovely wife, Patty Scott. Hello. Hello. To give you a little bit of backstory about the two of us, we met uh, 10 years ago by chance at a convention called Cinema Wasteland in Strongsville, Ohio, and the rest is history. So we have we are horror movie drive-in grindhouse exploitation geeks uh, from the get-go. So we knew Absolutely. it was, uh, yeah, anyways, we knew it was true love pretty much at first sight. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And, and you've been stuck with me ever since. Yeah, I like to think that we've been stuck with each other. <laughs> true, very true. But, you know, I've been doing podcasts off and on for well over a, a decade now. I used to do the Road to Midian on old blog, blog talk radio for many moons, but that is now defunct, and the Cinema Degeneration is now where it's at, where we have, we do Grindhouse and Exploitation on the Grindhouse Pizzeria, we have the Full Moon Show, we have the Indie Show, we have a few things, but... This is going to be a little different. We want to focus on creature features, uh, monster movies, uh, giant monsters, creatures, sharks. I guess we could include uh, demons and zombies and whatnot, but it has to be uh, creature-themed. Yeah. And 
Oh, I was just going to say that creature features are some of my most favorite things. If it's bad and it's a creature feature, I am there. <laughs> An emphasis on the word bad. It, it, it can be bad, but it's got to be so bad that it's good. If that yes. makes sense. Yes, there's definitely a fine line there between a bad movie and a good bad movie. Yeah, because we got a few, uh, well, we're going to get into the the bad, bad movies uh, a little later on. <laughs> we'll get into some <laughs> of those much later because, oh, yeah, we're going to rip some of those a new asshole. Uh, but, yes, a well-deserved one as well. Yeah, yeah, we have one in particular that we're going to let remain unnamed for, for the moment because uh, we're going to focus on one of our favorites. Uh, this is a movie that actually harkens back to us watching it the first time at a Cinema Wasteland show uh, several years ago. Uh, well, it was the first time for Patty. I had seen it many, many years before as a as about a 10 or 12-year-old, uh, which is probably a good 10 years earlier than I should have seen it. Absolutely. At least <laughs> 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that this movie to anybody under the age of 18. You know, don't, don't warp your fragile little minds at all. But uh, the movie that we're talking about that we're going to be reviewing and skewering this uh, evening is the 1988 directed by Frank Hennen Lauder classic brain damage. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I can't say enough good things about this movie, but we'll get into our uh, reviews and ratings later on. But yeah, you're going to, you're going to hear a lot of love for this movie. I mean, let's get up right off into it. Um, what was your first impression, Patty? when we were watching Brain Damage for the first time in that little tiny screening room at Cinema Wasteland. I, I think my first thought was, this is a great Wasteland film. And so for anyone who's never been to Cinema Wasteland, a lot of their films and screenings are really a, a nice mix of camaraderie and just debauchery. And so <laughs> I really think that this film fit in nicely. It was a great um audience to be able to see it with and it so it just made it for a whole lot more fun yeah the audience participation that you get at cinema wasteland is unparalleled than any other convention or festival and it, yeah it's a perfect wasteland film and for me it was just it was a frank hendenlotter film so i was in from the get-go uh i was a big basket case fan since pretty much since I saw Basket Case at like six or seven years old. Yes, I probably saw it that early. Uh, Might have been even earlier. I'm not sure. But sometimes I don't like to think about how early I saw some of these films. <laughs> well, and you had introduced me to Hen and Lauder and to Basket Case before this. So you had kind of prefaced watching this movie by saying, yeah, this was a Hen and Lauder movie. So I had some idea that it was going to be ridiculous, um, but just didn't know quite the extent or quite what I was getting into. Yeah, this is probably the craziest film. Uh, a lot of people like to cite uh, Frankenhooker as being his craziest mm -hmm. film. But, you know, it, uh, not to diss Frankenhooker because I love all things Hen and Lauder, but that's probably my least favorite Hen and Lauder film. But, you know, through process of elimination, even if you love them all, you, you know, one of them is going to be your favorite and one of them is not. But, uh Brain damage is it's it's right up there. It's it's neck and neck with uh, basket case, and does depend on which day you ask me which one that I like better. <laughs> yeah, I I think brain damage will probably top basket case, um, but you know I kind of overall it depends on which of the basket cases you're talking about. The first one I think ranks a bit higher for me than some of the the other two. Um, but I think I rank Frankenhooker a little higher than you do as well. 
Yeah, no, most people I talk to rank Franken Hooker better than I do or higher than I do. And I, like I said, I, I don't dislike it, but, you know, like I said, through that process of elimination, you know, one of them's got to be at, on the bottom tier of that list. And <laughs> it's still a great film, you know. But uh, let's get into the meat, uh, no pun intended, of brain damage. Uh, what we're doing here, we're also going to be doing a special drink that we uh, had for tonight during our viewing. And uh, if you want, uh, honey, uh, while we're getting started, before we really get started into the, the gist of the film and the story and all the, the tidbits behind the scenes, why don't you give the people uh, the name and the rundown of our special brain damage drink? Yeah, so we decided for this first brain damage episode, we wanted to do something that would reflect something about the movie itself. And so for those of you that have seen this, um, you know, we're going to be talking about Elmer and um, Elmer uses his juicer's goo to kind of inject into the brainstem of his victims. And so we decided to make the Elmer's juice drink. So mm-hmm. in order to make that, um, we used a half of a blue squeeze it. We use some Sprite as kind of our base. And then we put in about an ounce of blue Caraco, an ounce of uh, Bushmills whiskey, an ounce of sweet and sour mix with some ice. Just kind of shook that up, mixed it up. Um, Made for like a beautiful blue drink that was um, nice and sweet and went down real smooth. Oh, and it was very tasty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that what, what this I, I can't literally say that this uh the best one yet, but it's the first one yet. So yeah, it is the best one yet. <laughs> the best so far. But how can you even start to describe brain damage as a film? I mean, it, it's one of the greatest films to come out of the eighties. It was again uh, released in nineteen eighty eight, but it might be like the greatest movie of all time. That's about a kind of a penis shaped phallic shaped drug pushing brain eating just creature it's never quite explained the what the almer is um or if he's uh you know earth-based if he's alien-based but he's definitely uh, not a humanoid creature he's very phallic shaped very slug-like and you know even at one point uh that we watched the movie on the Arrow Blu-ray edition, and we watched some of the behind-the-scenes, and uh, the fact that his phallic shape was not lost on the crew members who had to create Elmer <laughs> and had to, uh, you know, size him up and create him and draw him. So they drew a couple little penises into the little curves and 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 wrinkles that are in elmer's skin because elmer's skin is very much brain like it has the kind of the grooves and and the creases of the brain and but if you look closely enough now that that we can uh in the day and age of being able to pause blu-rays and dvds and whatnot frame by frame you can see yes there is a big penis not a big penis because it's elmer's very small yeah uh <laughs> And that's not it's not a, a phallic reference saying that he's small, but he is a teeny tiny little guy. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a little guy. I, I did like that little homage too. is, you know, they really just kind of went all in and it was like, OK, we know he looks like a little dick. We're just going to go full in and just make sure that we're fully aware on board with this. Um, and so, yeah, so they had noticed the way that they had created some of the sulci or kind of those large ridges in the brain that that there's a couple that look like a couple little penises in the back there. 
which it's, you know, it made for kind of a fun watch then afterwards to kind of look and see if you could pick it out throughout the film. In the last rewatch, I did pick it out <laughs> a couple yeah. of times, especially in the close up when he's, you know, delivering the brain juice into the main character's mm-hmm. brainstem. You, if you just pause it, you don't really even have to pause it. If you just look, you can, you can pick it out. It's like a big dick and balls on the side of Elmer's head. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you had asked kind of like, how do we sum this up of, of kind of what brain damage is? I think, you know, the tagline for the movie was it's a headache from hell. And I think that that kind of encapsulates everything that you're in for. You know, I, I think it, it sums up the, this is just going to be some eighties, beautiful cheese. Um, it's set in kind of eighties. New York city is like kind of this nightmarish city and this just downtrodden poverty area um and then we just get to see all the the beautiful disgusting creatureness that comes about from it and you know and i think elmer is almost like a, a metaphor so to speak for new york city itself because it, everything that they show in the city is dirty dingy mm-hmm. grimy grody you know at, at a time in new york when things were not as uh tip top as they were as as they are now well maybe not now because everything it seems like the entire country is on fire at the moment but you know we'll get it that's another show for another time but we start (laughs) off right in the beginning it seems somewhat normal you have you have morris and martha uh the film's opening characters and they're the keepers of the elmer but you don't know that quite yet i mean as we're getting into in the opening uh seconds Morris is coming home with a delivery. It seems very banal, very benign. He's just coming home with something from the butcher's shop. But you kind of notice, at least I did in the beginning, that these people are not quite normal. They're not quite all there. They're not quite operating, you know, on a full deck. But uh, they seem know, Morris, ill. Yeah, they seem ill. They look very ill. They, they they seem very shaky. And which is, again, one of the many metaphors in this movie for, you know, drug use and, uh, you know, going through the DTs and jonesing and whatnot. But uh, you've come to find out that what he's bringing home is a cavalcade of brains. And I'll be damned, you know, I'm looking at at these brains when uh, Martha unwraps the butcher's paper. They looked very real. I I think they must have gotten I couldn't find any, any information online about this, but. I think the brains were real. They must have gotten calf brains or pig brains from a butcher's shop because they did not look, you know, like your typical fake gelatinous kind of brains. Yeah, I, I would agree. They they did look pretty good. Um, I'm, I tried to find that, too, to see if I could see if they were actual brains that were used, but I couldn't. Um, but, you know, there are people that still actually eat cow brains and pig brains and things like that. So it, I imagine it wouldn't be that difficult to be able to find that to use for a prop. Oh, ew, ew. <laughs> I, I could like to just eat just about anything at least once, but I don't know that I could bring myself to eat brains. I yeah. remember my grandparents eating brains. Like my mom's parents would both eat cow brains. I remember that that being kind of like a specialty when they went to some certain shops, they would pick it up. But oh. that was not something that I ever decided to try. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty adventurous, but, you know, I'll, I'll just have to say let's say we didn't you know (laughs) but uh, okay they get in uh they get into the brains martha makes up a plate and she's like oh he's gonna love these well meanwhile morris is kind of like having a headache he's having a moment and you can tell he's in some distress uh 
Martha takes the brains on a plate with a nice little parsley garnish, you know, prettying them up real nice to bring them into the bathroom where there's a bathtub full of bluish water that's just empty. And she freaks out. She just starts screaming, not screaming for anybody or anything. We don't really know what at, at the point because Aylmer hasn't been introduced yet. But uh, th they both go in total freak out mode and they tear apart their apartment. And at first it seems kind of aimless, like they're just picking things, to, you know, picking an area to kind of destroy in the kitchen and in the living room. But no, they're overturning everything. They're leaving, leaving no stone left unturned. And it's obvious that they're uh <laughs> they're in some fucking trouble you just the, the thing is at the mo at the moment we haven't been introduced to, to elmer yet so we don't really know what it is but once it becomes fully known it's you you understand why they go through the the motions that they're going through yeah at first it seems like they've just lost like a valued pet of somebody that or something that you know, they love, they missed, and all of a sudden they feel like their life is being turned upside down because this thing is no longer there. Um, what I thought was really kind of interesting about this scene, too, is the more that they look throughout the home, it looks like they're kind of jonesing or their um, DT symptoms seem to get worse. And so it seems like they really start to, their headaches seem to get worse. They seem to be more fatigued. They seem to be um, kind of more pale than what they were, too um throughout mm -hmm. the time that they're trying to search through the house for him yeah it's like immediately upon noticing that this Aylmer is gone it, like their dt symptoms just go into overload yeah. and i do like like how when morris comes home it's almost like a matter of like hey you know it's, it's so normal like oh i had to go to the other butcher down the street it was such a long walk it was something so normal of just going to pick up brains and you know it's like hey i'm honey bringing home the bacon nope and bringing home the brains i just i i yeah. find that so absurd absurd but it's a heaven lauder film so it does make sense and the way and I, it segues i think it speaks to part of their daily routine then too of like they've had him for so long that this was just part of the normal day you know because i imagine when they first got him life was probably a bit more upended but now that as we've learned that they've tamed him down and have kind of reduced him to what he was that this is just kind of a day in the life of right because it is revealed later on and we'll get into it more deeply later on but it's revealed that the morris and martha have been and keep Homer, this little creature who feeds on human brains they've been keeping him weak by feeding him animal brains it's almost kind of like uh you know, like almost like feeding a zombie animal brains, you know, is this not going to do? And you realize it's keep, they're keeping this creature just weak and tamed. Mm -hmm. But we get into the, our main character, Brian, as it cuts to a, another point in uh, this uh, apartment building that they're living in, this dingy apartment building in New York City. He's, you know, Brian's just laying in bed and his girlfriend, I forgot her name, uh, Barbara. You know, calls him up and says, hey, we got the concert to go to later on tonight. And he's obviously just not feeling well. He kind of looks like he's gotten into a fight. We'll talk about his split lip later on because uh, it was often rumored that it was supposed to be from a cut fight scene at the beginning that he had at a punk club. And he got his lip split. But when actually it was Frank Henenlotter found the uh, actor Rick Hurst 
uh, too fucking pretty. It was it literally what he had said was too fucking pretty. So they had to do something to constantly every day at the beginning of filming. They put a split lip on him, which I found to be just totally awesome. Like this guy just looks too goddamn good. We're just going to dirty him up a little bit. Well, and in the beginning, too, they make him look just really sick and run down, too. So the first time that you meet this character, I don't think anybody's first impression is like, oh, yeah, that's a good looking, attractive man. He just looks really sickly and pale and has this split lip. And you're like, OK, this this guy's suffering. Right, right. And, you know, he there's this whole scene and, you know, and what we don't know at, at this moment is. Elmer's already got his hooks into Brian. He's already in, has, quote-unquote, injected his brain juice into him, which we don't know that yet, but, I mean, it's obvious right at the beginning that this is where Elmer first ran to and where he first escaped to. How he got into the apartment, we never quite find out, which I, I always wanted to know, like, how did Elmer, like, get in? Did he sneak in? Did he, like, climb in through a window? Because, you know, he's just a slug with, with, with a mouth. There, there's no arms, no legs. So... That was one little thing that I always thought needed to be answered. Like, how the fuck did little Elmer make it into this apartment? But, but Well, I know one of the things, like at the very beginning when they're searching the apartments, they try to look for bathrooms and sinks and drains. So I wondered if he had used, like, the drainage system in some way of coming through the tubs to be able to get from place to place. You know, that is a great idea right there. I never... Never even considered that. I always just thought of like, well, he liked water and he stayed in water and they kept him hydrated. But yeah, they do go from apartment to apartment. And let's talk about that for a moment. They they knock on the neighbor neighbor's doors. And the first neighbor we see is uh, Beverly Bonner. And Beverly Bonner plays uh, just just the annoyed neighbor because they pretty much barge right into our apartment like oh we're looking for something boom morse just busts right in the door runs into her bathroom looks into her bathtub doesn't see anything and they just leave her alone i mean like i, I imagine in new york city that that kind of shit would get you shot and or stabbed or at least get the police <laughs> called on you but it's beverly bonner she played casey in the original basket case and in a cameo in basket case too i had always thought at least in my mind writing and being a writer and a filmmaker and with creating backstories was that this was just casey from basket case and like she was just unfortunately in another shitty apartment building where other crazy shit was happening because she's living in frank Lauder's pseudo david lynch type world yeah and you know as we learned that Obviously, David Heaven or Hen uh, Lauder decides that the word the worlds are intermingling, and so we know that each distinct film that he has probably are in the same universe, as we will learn and talk about with some later cameos. Yes, but then we we finally get with within a, a few minutes, Barbara Brian's girlfriend shows up. Brian convinces his roommate, who is his older brother or younger brother. I actually I can't remember if he was an older or younger brother, but it, his brother Mike convinces his brother Mike to take Barbara to the concert. He doesn't feel well. He's just going to lay down, which I found to be very weird that that Brian was so insistent that Mike takes his girlfriend Barbara out. It this felt very strange. And like the first time you see Mike's character open the door and like let Barbara in. 
to the to the apartment. He's obviously checking her out. He's you know he's checking her out as she's walking past, and it's very creepy. So like the first thing I thought, I'm like, no, this is the last guy I would want taking my girl, you know, <laughs> to a concert. Like, oh, I don't feel well here. Please take my girl out, show her a good time. No, no, this guy's a creeper. No. Yeah, he he very much gives that vibe off early of like, yeah, I'm gonna go fuck your girlfriend, uh, without really even giving a second thought. But right, you know, right. I, I I always interpret it as you know they opened on New York City being in a time where New York is was not nearly the safe place that it is today, and so she's probably not wanting to give up the tickets. You need somebody to go with her to help kind of maintain some semblance of safety. And so he's the only one that's available to do that. So I think it kind of leaves him between this rock and a hard place of either I send my girlfriend out into the world being very unsafe or I send this guy who's likely going to lust all over her after her too. Right. Yeah. And the, the, the smartest thing would have been to just had her stay in the apartment with him and not go anywhere. But if we would have had that, then we wouldn't have much of a movie. Very true. Very true. Well, then we get, you know, right after that, we get our first real uh, glimpse at the the trippiness, the hallucinogenic theme of this film. We get our first kind of light flares, and we have, uh, you know, Brian start hallucinating for the first time. And the visuals, I absolutely love that initial tripping scene where the the blue waves is coming over everything. The light fixtures turning into eyes i mean mm-hmm. a drowning blue water coming up over everything and just engulfing the entire room like in a wave of blue water that's just it's very beautiful to look at you know at, at first you know some some of the subsequent uh tripping scenes are very very harsh hallucinogenic wise but this opening one it was i, I thought was very beautiful yeah, and I to me, I felt like it was almost kind of like the chasing the dragon thing you always hear people talking about with that high, that it's probably mm-hmm. this nice, calm, idyllic high that he tries to get again and again, but just nothing ever comes close to that again for him. Yeah, it was a perfect uh, interpretation of that. And Hennelotter has is, is often said in interviews that he wrote the film as a metaphor to co- cocaine addiction, his own cocaine addiction, you know, and kicking that habit, you know, and this was his response to kicking the habit you know and fucking good for him for delving into something you know obviously that's that painful to turn Mm -hmm. it into a film i can identify with that (laughs) i think the one thing that kind of bothered me about the opening scene though you know know, had mentioned that uh elmer this creature just goes and injects brian without any kind of initial consent but then relies specifically and very heavily on Brian's consent later on um, for him to be able to further inject him with that. So it's really kind of a dirty pool, just dirty move on his part to get what he wants. Oh, and I actually have a note here that literally says Almer loves to fucking play dirty pool. And he, <laughs> he, he does. He's a typical, you know, drug dealer, you know, first hit is free. Rest yep. of them are going to cost you, and yes. it will cost you dearly. But I, I can't help but love the Elmer character. He's just so he's so disgusting. He looks gross. He looks like you know a cross between a penis and a turd. To be quite honest, he looks very slimy, very dirty. But at the same time, when he's finally revealed, because let's face it, he does reveal himself at you know at the end of this you know 
a tripping scene where Brian is calling out like, you know, he kind of knows something's there. He knows something's messing, but he doesn't quite know what it is. And when Elmer first. That's right. That's right. It was the blood scene. Because and and Brian has this crazy reaction to the blood. To me, it's a crazy reaction because he just kind of looks at it. It's not a little dot of blood. It's not a little couple drops of blood. It's like, oh, hey, I I blood up like a, a pint or two here on the bed. And it's coming from the back of his head. And he's just covered in blood from the back of his head and his neck. He, he doesn't really react to it like a normal person would, I don't think. No, and I, I can't tell if it was that kind of reaction because of the blood loss that he had. That, you know, it might have made him initially kind of woozy to begin with and not thinking clearly. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he definitely doesn't respond in an appropriate level of intensity as he should be of like, you just lost a lot of blood. You should be a whole lot more concerned about this. Yeah. You should be dialing nine one one something, anything. Mm -hmm. But what I love is Elmer's reveal scene. He pops up over his shoulder, just kind of wiggles his little head, says hi and winks, just hi, wink, wink. And then it does a quick dissolve to the next scene. And it's just, such an insane fucking way to introduce such a weird character. I think what I like even before that point, even before he's revealed, is the build up to that point. Um, because you can start to see this thing like circling around him. Um, so you can see it like underneath his shirt that there's something that's there that's kind of like worming their way around him with this really strong, intense drumming music. Um, that I think yeah. really builds a nice intensity to figure out, like, what the hell is this thing that is burrowing into his skull? Well, the repeating theme, you know, the, the kind of the brain damage theme or the Elmer theme, that that low uh, drums in the bass that they have that that comes with every, like, every other scene once Elmer is introduced is a great little theme. Yes. Yeah. But, uh. And let, let's talk, we got to talk a little bit about the the voice actor for this, John Zacherly, the, the infamous horror host, you know, he has such a commanding voice and just, I love it. I, I love Elmer's voice. I, I love the fact that Zacherly did it at a time when, you know, he couldn't do it uh, for an official credit. He had to do it uncredited because of the Screen Actors Guild, because of SAG. But he was still he, you know, for the doing the kind of creature feature things that uh, Zachary would do. It was such a weird choice, you know, for doing all these classic horror films to do something like brain damage. But yeah. kudos to him I, for that. I didn't know as much about him. Like I knew who Zachary was, but I didn't know as much about his history. So I had actually gone and done some digging about him. Um, and he was so he was born in 1918 in Pennsylvania and lived in Manhattan for more than 50 years. He had actually lived in the same one bedroom rent controlled apartment in Manhattan for 50 years before he had passed away, which I wow. thought was kind of interesting. And I felt like that was almost kind of very reminiscent to um, kind of that same living in New York City in this one bedroom apartment feel to it. Um which was kind of drawn to him. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that he stayed in the same place for 50 years. I've I've lived in 15, 20 different places in 44 years, and I just can't imagine being like locked down in the same place for 50 plus years. That's yeah, that's insanity. Yeah, and then he was inducted into the Horror Host Hall of Fame in 2011. 
It seems to me like he should have been inducted into that much, much earlier. But then again, I don't know exactly when that was formed. So, you know, he might have been one of the first inductees for all I know. Yeah, yeah. But his voice, oh, it's just great. Like, well, hello, Brian. You ready for some brain juice? You know, I'm doing a, a horrible Zachary. But it's, it's very regal. It's very elegant. But it also has just like this air of I'm better than you. That comes across too, which I oh, think yeah. is really makes for a great voice for this character. It has a he, he with the tone that he takes with everything he says to Brian, because let's face face it, the only person that he interacts with is Brian a little bit with uh, uh, Morris and Martha for a very little bit. But you know, the only person he truly interacts with that he doesn't kill instantly is Brian, and he talks to him so condescendingly. He gets him hooked. I mean, he gets him hooked, you know, like you said, he doesn't get his consent the first time. He just injects him with it and gets him hooked and then relies on him to take him out to he want his end game is to finally get strong again and start eating human brains once once again because Morris and Martha kept them weak on on, you know, and on almost like a vegetarian diet as far as he's concerned. Yeah. Well, and even the first time that he has the conversation with Brian, you know, once he kind of pops out and introduces himself as like, hi, Brian, um, and he comes out, it's all just very placating, just very condescending of just like, I'm everything that you'll ever need. Just trust me, Brian. Just listen to the light. Everything's fine. Um, And just kind of this, there's no concern. I know you just got stabbed by this big blue looking dick that came out of your neck, but everything's fine. (laughs) Just ignore it. You'll be all right. It's true. It's basically a big blue dick turd. It does. It looks like a <laughs> dick turd that just came out of the back of his neck and left this big gaping, like centimeter size hole in the back of his neck. And, and you know, and, and a note I had here: the brain injection scenes. Yeah, like that's not healthy or hygienic. Brian would have died within days, I think, of some sort of infection. I don't know how Martha and Morris had him for so many years and didn't die of some sort of infection because. It, this, you know, it's not hygienic. It, it's, it's it's all so very dirty. And I think to myself, you know, especially in the current times we're in with a you know a pandemic on on the loose, you know, th- mm. there's infections everywhere. Like how how people made it through the eighties, <laughs> especially they in New didn't. York, New York eighties. Most of them didn't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, that that's where we get the hepatitis and all those <laughs> other infections that are transferred via needle. I think that's where a lot of that comes from. So. We don't know that he didn't get something else or that the the couple didn't have any other kind of, the Ackermans didn't have any other kind of. Well, it might be a re- reason, the reason why they were <laughs> so sickly looking, you know, they were on their last legs anyway, you know, they, you know, they looked like they were about in their 70s, their 80s, hell, for all you know, they might have been in their 40s and just really, really aged fucking bad due to the Elmer juice. <laughs> but, you know, the Elmer you know, to to describe for you at home, since this is an audio podcast and not a video podcast, of how Elmer injects his brain juice. He kind of unhinges his jaw much like, uh, you know, like a snake. His head tilts back a little bit. His jaw kind of comes down and unhinges. And there's all these little wiggly wigglies that look like mini tentacles slash maggots almost. Mm-hmm. And there's this long kind of a needle uh the basically it just basically what it looks like the needle that comes out of his throat he injects it through the back of the brain uh the brain stem 
and injects this blue electronically charged juice because it has all these nice little uh, animated bits of like little static electricity kind of charges looking type of thing. And it's all very trippy. It's all very psychedelic and everything, you know, it's all goes back to this blue hue. I, I kind of want to know if I could ever meet Frank Henelotter again and ask him another question. I would want to ask him, like, why was the, the choice made to make everything blue and get that blue hue to, to almost everything, especially during the tripping scenes? Yeah, that's but. a good question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I just attributed it to, you know, obviously that's the color of the juice that's getting injected into him. And so, you know, that color is probably pervade throughout the scenes that way. But why it was blue and not orange or purple or anything else is a good question. Yeah, just, I was just curious of what the aesthetic choice was to make every, make the juice itself even blue. But, you know, it's all very nice and very colorful. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a nice color scheme that, because everything is blue. Everything is blue tinged to this. Once Elmer gets introduced, the color scheme of the movie just changes. And... What does what does Elmer want? Again, we got a little bit sidetracked, but that happens here every once in a while. Elmer wants human brains, so he convinces Brian to just take him on a walk, and that's all he says he wants. He just wants to be taken on a walk, and he doesn't care where he goes. So Brian goes all over the city, and where do they end up? They end up at a junkyard, a car junkyard. Because, you know, what I, I think of, if I'm going to go on a scenic walk, I definitely think junkyard. Yeah, I, I want to see a bunch yeah. of wrecked out old cars, a bunch of old <laughs> sedans busted up, busted the shit. So, yeah, you know, I mean, if I was in New York for the first time, I know, you know, out and about, that's not exactly where I would want to go. <laughs> so that's where they go. They go to the junkyard and Brian is, to put it quite bluntly, tripping balls. He is tripping balls out yep. and he is seeing a light show. He is hooting and hollering, just hopping around. I mean, he is... It's like, you know, the, the high that he's he gets. I was just going to say, he's experiencing some things right there. <laughs> yeah, he's experiencing yeah. shit. And yeah, that shit's looking all special to him. But, uh, you know, but he's hopping around. He's hooting, hollering and, hollering and screaming. And what does he attract the attention of? But, of course, the night watchman who takes his job way too fucking seriously. This poor night watchman, you know, is preparing his gun and putting on his hat. Like he's going out to face, you know, the battle of Normandy and, you know, he's cocking his gun and holding it all. It's just, just all threatening and stuff. And it's this all, it's one of the most ridiculous scenes in the movie, in a movie about a brain dick turd that injects uh, drugs into the back of your brain. That was where my suspension of disbelief <laughs> <laughs> and it's obviously just a guy who's just high as shit. Like, he doesn't look threatening at that point. You know, he j he's laughing and carrying on and just enjoying the world around him. Like, yeah, he's, he's high, but, you know, no reason that that watchman would feel, should feel threatened or right, feel the right. need to defend the world against him at that point. Yeah, you know, it was almost like a Rambo type scene. Like he was just preparing to go into battle and it was just, it was just funny. But, you know, what happens? He tries to arrest Brian and finds the little Elmer Dick Turd underneath his uh, shirt kind of moving around again. Once again, he's kind of like, hey, what the hell is this? And he opens up Brian's shirt. Elmer goes straight for the brain and he doesn't try to burrow in through the side or in through the back where it might be easier to straight through the fucking forehead and just burrows burrows in and destroys this guy's <laughs> this guy's brain pan you know it, it's decimated 
and Brian is kind of still in a euphoric state. I don't think he understands or even knows where he's at or what's just happened. But, you know, he's just kind of calmly just like, hey, you know, the the, the colors are starting to fade. Can you give me a little bit more more juice? And he's just like, "Hmm, okay, you know, as he's eating brains, you know, he's chomping on brains. He has the funniest line. I love Elmer when he's, when Brian asks him, you know, you know, so, so, so how, how was it? Well, not bad, a bit underdone. And it's yeah. like, what would he consider to have been done right? You know, like, like uh, how, how is, how can a raw brain be underdone? I don't, it wasn't I nice get it. with that sprig of, sprig of parsley though. That's the issue. There was no sprig of parsley there for him just to enjoy along mm-hmm. on the perfectly plated brain. Yeah, 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 maybe he doesn't like it straight from the tap, you know. It's, it's uh, He likes a little sprig of parsley to pick his teeth with what he's done. I don't know, but yeah, that line, though, not bad, been underdone. That's a great line. But yeah. uh, then we go straight from that. I mean, like another favorite scene is the dinner scene when Brian is kind of forced to go on a date with Barbara. She kind of forces him at this point. Like she knows something's up. She just thinks that he's on drugs or that he's uh, seeing another woman, but he can't, you know, Elmer won't let him tell her that that Elmer exists. They're they're in a fancy little, you know, Italian restaurant. They're getting sit down to some pasta, which that's what I got. I got to get into. The the point of that is though, like, so we had, had kind of skipped over the fact that, you know, he sends Barbara out to the concert with the brother, but then when they come back, he's not in the house any longer. And so she's then convinced that, oh, he was just ditching me as opposed to going to this concert with me. Right. He's really out going running around on me. So I think this dinner is meant to be like, a, okay, you owe me this because you bailed on me from this concert. So now let's have this nice Italian spaghetti and meatballs dinner out together. And it's the worst looking food ever. Like uh, that must it, it looked about well, as bad the as the hallucination set in. Yeah, before the hallucination set in, and the spaghetti and meatballs turned into pulsating brains that are breathing and going, uh, and, you know, and just making it look and sound a lot worse than it than it should be. But the pasta it looks so congealed, and the sauce looks so bad. As a cook myself, I, I'm just like. Oh, the, the every bit of me that's a cook or a chef or whatever you want to call it was just wanting to retch. It is the, was the most worst looking, fucking disgusting plate of pasta I'd ever seen. It probably only rivaled by the dinner scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre for absolute grossness <laughs> of food. But it, but it was a really neat way to show, uh, you know, the power that Elmer had over him at that point. You know, he'd gone just a little while without that juice, and he's already starting to hallucinate this. this these sick little brains on the plate by him. Right. And he's trying, uh, Brian's trying to tell Barbara what's going on, but you know, Elmer is under his shirt. And I, I kind of think every, every time that El- that he starts to say something, Elmer bites him or at least inflicts some sort of pain. And I think it's kind of hard to describe the experience that he's had too. So, you know, he's seeing all these things and, you know, kind of the hearing colors kind of idea of how do I explain to somebody these experiences that I've had when they obviously haven't experienced anything like this before. And so, you know, she had asked him, are you on drugs? And he's just like, no, it's more than that. And she, I don't think she has any comprehension of like, I don't understand 
what you're talking about or what that even means. Right, because he says something to the effect of, like, you know, it's nothing that simple. It's not drugs. It's nothing so simple. And he can't, you know, he can't explain it, you know, without Elmer, you know, Elmer stops him, you know, consistently. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, how do you explain that you got an evil creature parasite that's injecting blue goo into your brain? I mean, like, I can't imagine, like, you know, if this was, quote, unquote, real life. Telling, explaining that to anybody without going, yeah, they're just going to lock me up and throw away the key. Exactly. Exactly. And I think she's already a little worried about that. So I think he might be kind of particularly aware of like, yeah, she's already thinking I'm bananas. And so we can't, can't go down that road any farther. Yep. So then he bails, he bails on her again. He's barely even present at the, uh, at the dinner. You know, but he he hallucinates so bad he's having a bad trip is basically, I guess, what we would call back in the day. And, uh, you know, he he bails. He ends up like, if I remember right, uh, the following scene is him just kind of roaming the city. He ends up in an alleyway next to a club. Next to the club. Yeah, next to the club, which is called the Hell Club. I love the name of it. The club's name is simply a red neon sign that says hell, which I think perfectly uh depicts the you know the early to mid 80s you know new york punk scene and i i think this comes to be one of the more famous scenes in the movie itself yeah um do you want to take this one (laughs) i'll let you take this one i mean because there's so much to be said about this so so initially we see brian with elmer on him of course going into this punk nightclub and we see him just doing these wild foolish psychedelic dance moves um kind of like elaine from seinfeld on drugs yes yeah if you could imagine elaine on seinfeld just being high as shit that's kind of the dance moves that he's got just jumping and yelling and screaming and even the other people at the rave are like i don't know what's happening with this fella um he then finds this girl that's into him who realizes that, you know, this punk chick realizes just how fucked up he is. And I think that's one of a favorite line of mine he's, where she's just like, you're fucked up, huh? Um, but, you know, so they decide that they're going to go fool around. And so she takes him out back behind the nightclub itself. Um, they start kind of making out and she feels down his pants and his, I think, you know, that's where Aylmer's resting, but thinks that he's just got a nice big member and she's going to have a whole lot of fun that night. Uh, she decides <laughs> that she's going to then try to go down on him. And then that's where we have the fact where Aylmer himself is then going into this punk chick's mouth and is just devouring her from the throat. Yeah, it's it's the infamous scene where everybody on, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people on set uh, tried to walk. A couple of the cast members and a couple of the crew members were so disgusted by the scene, they they, they walked. They all eventually came back and resh- and shot the scene, but it, it uh, was uh, something that has happened on a couple of uh, Hen and Lauder flicks where there's some uh, scenes that are just a bit too gross for some people to handle, but, you know, we love horror movies and that's why we're here because you know what says horror movie then an evil phallic uh dick turd creature brain eater that that deep throats a girl and eats her brains from the inside out there's something to be said about that that's so just cruel and evil and ingenious at the same time but i'm i'm a sick person i guess because i loved every moment of it it was just it was so disgusting and i don't know that you know you could ever 
top a fellatio themed horror scene in a movie after seeing this. I don't know why anybody would even want to try something like that because that is like the ultimate. It's, it's just the ultimate horrific kind of way to go. Well, and I think this is where they really embrace him as that phallic symbol too. Um, you know, they definitely knew what shape he was. They knew what he looked like. Um, you know, and so I think it, it just drives this point home even further when he's devouring in the back of her neck and you just see kind of this this punk chick from the side with this blue phallic shape sticking out of her mouth, like wiggling, trying to get to the back of her right. brain. Like, they, they knew what that looked like. There, there wasn't right. a question on what they thought that was. And even what they had Brian doing in the meanwhile, because Brian is still there as sort of an unwilling per- participant. You know, he's holding on to her head and with both hands and holding their head down. You know, it's almost like eventually Elmer and Brian, they kind of develop a symbiotic kind of relationship. I think the more and more uh, Elmer gives him the quote-unquote brain juice, the more he's obviously under Elmer's control. So I think at this point, Elmer is almost kind of controlling him in a manner of speaking. Yeah, in a way, I think I think it makes Brian just so oblivious that he's got no idea. Um, so, you know, I think probably in his mind, he saw it as he just had this girl that was giving him his he- some head. And so he was just holding the back of her head like he would somebody that was giving him some head and then you know just thinking that it was him um but you know one thing that i know we had talked about previously when we'd watched this was you know he seems to be getting just as much enjoyment out of elmer being in her mouth as opposed to his dick being in her mouth and so you know how the two of them connected that way that there's some type of symbiotic relationship there yeah, obviously, because he's getting some sort of pleasure from this, although, you know, it's not very clear how. It's somehow through Elmer, it's a very symbiotic kind of relationship, and it, it it's amazing. I, if there's one fault that this movie has is the fact that it never had a sequel. And I know, you know, the way it ends, there really couldn't be a sequel, but there always could be. Well, there's a will, there's a will. <laughs> I'm a writer, damn it. I know how to make these things work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after this scene, we get a confrontational kind of scene. Brian ends up back at his apartment. He's in the back alley at the garbage cans. He's taking off his pants so that he can remove his bloodied, soiled underwear that he doesn't know how they got bloodied. He just... All of a sudden, he's just dropping trow at the garbage can, standing there bare-ass, looking at his, his underwear yeah. with blood he in them. It's not with, his blood, but he doesn't know where the blood came from. Right, and that has like that comes to one of the best lines in the movie, which is a little bit later than this, but I'll say it now. When he says to Elmer, but hey, when it comes to blood in my underwear, I want to know how it got there. <laughs> That's what that I had written down to. <laughs> You know, that's not too much for anybody to ask. If you've got random blood in your underwear, you know, damn it, you should know where it came from. But <laughs> Another one well, kind of shortly after that that is one of my all-time favorites, too, is, you know, he tells, Elmer tells him that he had killed her. And he goes, of course she's dead. Are you kidding? <laughs> like, what, what yeah, do you Like, you ate her brain. Yeah, he's like, I ate her brains, and you know, and you, from the inside out, you know, and... He's like, well, she's dead? And he's like, well, yeah, of course. Like, what are you, of course. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, I think that's just a uh, great line. 
But Morris pops back up shortly after this. He confronts Brian, finally kind of giving him the lowdown on Elmer, uh, you know, which his name uh, harkens back to an old English word that means the awe-inspiring famous one, which I think is very interesting that that's the name they went with. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, it's feel, it feels like in this scene when Morris confronts Brian, mm. Morris looks like shit. He looks like he's aged 10 years if he's aged a day. You know, he looks very bad. He's getting very wrinkly, very kind of yellowish and gauntest, kind of jaundicey kind of looking. But all of a sudden what follows next, I, I just wrote down in, in a note that just said, History Lesson 101 of the History of Aylmer. You know, that basically that he had went back all the way to the fourth crusades that he had bounced around you know to the 1600s to europe that he ended up in germany world war ii and that they brought him over here you know post-world war ii and that you know really everywhere he's went he's he is just death and destruction people have fought over him they fought war over him they've killed each other over him so but it is a very it's a very nice neat scene that kind of tells you not like the origin of Elmer, because, you know, nobody knows exactly who or what the Elmer is, but it gives you the, the you know, the, the quick and the short and dirty version of it. We know he's been around, at least as history has recorded him since the 12th century, and he's just been going across the world from host to host, just devouring and living from then. And, you know, it's obvious that the Morris character is... A very intelligent person because he's very articulate he knows the history and it's like you it was obvious from his apartment there was a lot of things in there that harken back to you know being a history buff so he was a bit of a historian but as soon as brian kind of like pushes him away knocks him down over the trash cans and makes his escape he's reduced to like a blithering baby who's just pounding his fist just screaming mine he's mine mine just like a he, he's just reduced from you know this from a man to a petulant child, screaming at somebody that ran and took their ball with them. And I, I just love that part. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just showing how desperate he is for another fix. Um, he's just at a point where he knows that he's going to die, I think, if he doesn't get any more of this juice. And he's just doing everything in his power to get him back. Right, right. And he just, he's, you know, it's, it's amazing that he's even still alive because when last we saw them, they were both laying on the ground frothing at the mouth like having seizures so like when i originally at first saw this you know even as a child or even rewatch it it's always a surprise when they kind of pop back up because i'm like oh shit i thought y'all was dead you guys should have been dead but with this next scene ah i can only describe this as the sunshine hotel grossest hotel room ever yeah, I mean, if you want to rent a hotel by the hour, this is still not the place you want to go. No, you know, I we had reviewed, uh, Scott Temperman and I were talking about Maniac, which kind of takes place in, you know, a, new, a few years ahead of this in the same kind of New York City. And there's all types of creepy, seedy hotel rooms in that. And I would take a, the Maniac hotel room over that any day, considering even what happens yep. and goes on in there. Without a doubt, this is the skeeziest hotel ever. And just the, the idea that they call it the Sunshine Hotel, there's nothing shiny about this fucking place. You know, there community no showers, bath, bathrooms with no doors on them. Yep, no ray of sunshine here. But I will say this is the home of my favorite scene. This is where the scene that I just absolutely love. <laughs> 
We'll go right ahead. Yeah, so so it's at this point where, you know, Brian has now gotten a history lesson on Aylmer and has decided, ooh, maybe just getting juiced by this guy isn't the best thing for me in my life right now. I'm killing these people kind of unwittingly, and this has really gotten far out of my control. And he decides he really needs to kind of rein this in and get Elmer back under his control. So he decides to take Elmer to the Sunshine Hotel to try and help put himself back in in charge. So he decides this is the hotel he's going to go through the DTs with. He's just going to kind of ride this out, get him out of his system, and get to a point where Elmer's going to be needing him as opposed to the other way around. Um, And so we, we really see Brian going through hell. Um, you know, any kind of detox symptom that you can imagine, as intense as you can imagine he's going through right now. Um, and unfortunately, Elmer is not affected at all. He is just waiting it out because he knows eventually Brian's going to cave in long before he is. Um, so it comes to my favorite. You get the idea that he, he has seen this a hundred times before, a thousand times before, and he's probably won every single time. Yeah, as as close as we see Elmer coming to breaking, as we say, hear him say, like, hey, let's go get some hookers. I could eat a million of them right now. Um, <laughs> so let's know, like, he's getting a little hungry, but, you know, not to a point where he's really inconvenienced. It's just more of, like, that late-night craving he's having. Yeah, um, he's just cracking wise at this point, you know. He, he hasn't even begun to break. Yeah, so we finally see Brian at a point where he is really at the end of his rope. He can't make it any longer and realizes he's going to need Elmer to, to juice him back up. Um, and so he starts, Elmer starts singing from the sink and it's just singing this old timey tune that's called Elmer's tune. Um, mm-hmm. and is just enjoying the hell out of it. He is just hitting the high notes and you can just imagine if he developed little arms, he would have a top hat and a cane, just singing along, yep. just Frogtown style, um, and just in Brian's face of how awful he's feeling throughout this. Oh, yeah, and he's rubbing it in every step of the way. Because <clears throat> he's like, you're not going to beat me. He's like, we'll wait this out. He's like, now I'm not going to give you the, my juice. He's like, I'm not going to give it to you until you beg me for it. He's like, that's where we're going to go with it. He, This is where I wrote down in my notes where Elmer plays Dirty Pool. You know, yep. he totally is just like, yep, we're going to wait. I'm going to make you beg for it. <clears throat> and when he does, when Brian finally does beg for it, he he's like, no, no, not quite yet. You're going to have to feed me first. So he's still, you know, showing that he's playing, you know, with, with a stacked deck against Brian. He's always going to win as long as, you know, as long as his juice is in his system and it's already in his system, he's already, it's done. You know, you're kind of fatally hooked when you're hooked on Elmer. But I think it was also like it was smart on his part because, you know, there's been times where people have given in. He's juiced them and then they're like, ha still not going to feed you, though. See you later. Um, and so he's aware like that that's probably a contingency plan that Brian might have of, OK, I can just get juiced up, but then I don't have to go and find a brain for him to actually feed off of. And so for me, it's funny that you see this as the dirty pool move, because I feel like this is the part where he's actually being more honest with him of like, Listen, I'm not going to bite you when you're asleep. I promise I'm going to make you ask for it and kind of get your consent before I do this again. That's true. He does say that to him. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, he got him hooked the first time without yeah. his consent. But now he's, 
fully going for consent. I think it just harkens back to the kind of the drug dealer mentality of the first hits free, but yep. you're going to come back and then it's going to be $10. Oh, but well, then it's going to come back. Yeah, it's going to be $30. Well, now it's $120. You know, they're, they're upping the ante no matter what. And I still see it as, as Elmer, not so maybe even so much as completely playing dirty pool as he is just, as you put it, he's just playing it smart. Once again, he hasn't made it, you know, for hundreds, if not maybe thousands of years by, you know, playing the games not smart. Yep. Yep, exactly. He is he has gone through and lost that game before. He's not gonna bound to make that repeat mistake. So he sends Brian after he has one of the mo- most horribly painful experiences I've ever seen on film. Like Brian looks horrible. He's sweating colors that should not come out of the human skin. Yeah. He, he 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 looks like he's just like he's sweating bourbon. Like like bourbon is just like coming out of his pores. And it looks really. I mean, he looks really sickly. He has a moment where he picks at his ear and he picks a little bit of brain matter out. And then he goes full in and digs and starts pulling out this long, stringy, kind of intestine brain matter looking, and he just pulls it out, and he keeps pulling. And he's pulling out feet and feet worth of it. I mean, just like 20 foot worth of the, this, this brain matter. And, and then when he finally hits the end and pops it off, his fucking ear just falls off and hits the ground. And Elmer has that line, and he's like, oh, you're really falling apart now, Brian? He's, you know, still got the upper hand. He's and, loving every minute of it. You know, he's now having what we would fully call a bad trip at this point. So Brian finally succumbs. He's going to give him what he wants. He's going to give him get him brains. So he goes to what is probably the creepiest uh, community shower that I've ever seen in the dirtiest hotel that I've ever seen. And it's just everything about this just screamed unclean and do not, <laughs> you know, I looked at that. And I'm like, nah, do, don't go in there, man. It's just it's bad things are going to happen, but it's actually, you know, there's just a, a kind of a muscly kind of guy in there just sudsing up and cleaning up. And he's actually a very nice guy. You think he's going to be a creep because in a movie like this, this movie is filled with creeps, but he's just kind of like, yo man, it's all good. You all right. You're safe. You're yeah. You're good in here. You know, uh, Nobody's, Nobody's going to bother you here. Yeah, right, right. Nobody's going to bother you. And, and Brian just keeps looking at him. And all, all of a sudden, this the slimer, slimy Aylmer dick turd slides down his leg and disappears. And you think this poor guy, this, this you know, muscle-bound dude, is going to get his, his in the end. But nope, uh, Aylmer ends up going into the john and taking out a poor guy that was just trying to dr- drop the kids off at the pool so to speak <laughs> mm-hmm. it's just you know this poor guy is just sitting there again another dude just minding his own business in what is the world's dirtiest dingiest nastiest bathroom i've ever seen and what does elmer do burrows into his brain and and goes to town and finally gets his human brains once again so he's got what he wants brian has a bit of a freak out moment because you know who wouldn't freak out when you see a geyser of blood shooting up out of a you know a bathroom stall like that because you know that's not normal and this is really the first time he's seen it because he's been under the juice for any of the other times that it's happened. And so this is the first time that he really sees the destruction that Elmer brings to somebody. Yeah, he's only seen bloody, dirty clothes after this, at least that he can remember. Everything else is just, 
you know, kind of swept under the rug, under the mind rug for him. Because he doesn't yep. remember any of it. This really is the first time that he's witnessed the destruction. And it's kind of an open, it's an eye opener. But he, you know, he, he gets out of the hotel, he leaves. And uh, I think the following scene, if I remember right, is him going back to the apartment. Yes. Nobody's there. Mike is not there. Barbara's not there. He just goes into his room, just kind of lays down and is just kind of defeated and tired at the end of the day. But what does he get? He gets a little bolt of brain juice or uh, Elmer juice, but not uh, before s- something else happens. Uh, Barbara and uh, Mike both come home, go to the main room because let's, let's put it this way. Mike's bedroom is just basically the living room. You open the door of the apartment, it opens up straight into the, a kitchenette slash, you know, den. And he's like kind of sleeping on a futon, but what we thought would happen all along finally does happen. Barbara and Mike hook up and they're screwing in the living room, not knowing that Brian is in the next room, tripping balls on Elmer juice. So it's a very, very odd, uh, how, how do you want to call it? Uh, it, it it's, it's the weirdest brain juice scene because he's having a hallucination that's basically like a a weird brain-eating, psychosexual brain-eating threesome between his brother, himself, and, and, and poor Barbara that ends with him eating her brains, which I thought was, again, very weird hallucinogenic kind of kind of thing to portray. But, you know, this movie is full of those kind of scenes. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very kind of a weird but very sexualized scene. Absolutely. But... Brian isn't phased by any of this. He comes out of the room. He's kind of, I think he's, you know, succumbed to his fate. He realizes that he's under a control that he's never going to quite kick. And he's not even phased by the fact that his brother just got done fucking his, uh, you know, his uh, girlfriend in the next room. He basically just has an explanation to him like, listen, I I can't be here. You know, if, if, if I'm here, then he's here, then you're in trouble you're in danger. I've got to leave. And he's very cryptic about it. Doesn't, you know, kind of tell them everything. He paints them a little bit better of a picture, but not the full picture. And then he just bolts out the door, which I also thought was comical because he leaves the door wide open for anybody that's walking the halls to kind of see and like, hey, you know, a little <laughs> privacy here. You just want to shut the door. We're both in our birthday suits. It's fine. It's New York City at that 80s. It's fine. Nobody cares. Right. Yeah. No, nobody probably did care. But, uh, <laughs> That leads to what's coming up to one of my favorite scenes and which leads into my favorite cameo of the film. Because once again, seedy, dark, dingy New York. But we get a little cameo. Uh, Barbara follows Brian into the the subway, which is just kind of a few sporadic people, none of which are worth mentioning. But one, it's definitely (laughs) worth mentioning. One is... Yeah, it's Kevin Van Hentenrick and the star of the Basket Case trilogy. Yeah, we we get the basket. We may not get Belial, but we know what's in that basket because we know who it is. It's New York. It's 1980s. It's Kevin Van, H- Van Hentenrick with a basket. It's fucking Belial. So technically, we have a Basket Case uh, brain damage crossover. Although it's nothing really comes of it. I mean, Kevin Ben Hendrick is just sitting there across from Brian and Barbara while Barbara's trying to get Brian to say something, anything. Uh, but Almer is now lodged deep within Brian's throat. 
they're in his chest cavity because every time Brian opens his mouth, Elmer kind of pops his little head out and in this little weird kind of animatronic way. But she never is quite able to catch it because the lights on the subway keep flickering on and off too throughout the scene. So anytime that Elmer pops out, it tends to be kind of dark and flickering and she just doesn't quite realize what's in store for her. Yeah, or or she looks away or just happens to, you know, look over her shoulder at, at something for a moment and, you know, but she's always missing it these three or four times when Elmer's popping out. But Van Hentendrek is uh, is Dwayne uh, Bradley is uh <laughs> but he, he's, and ironically uh, he's not credited that way he's only credited as man with basket yes i think it was just their way to kind of wink wink nod nod to it without probably at the time paying the, the extra copyright money to yeah. you know to use the character but it's him it's it yeah. has the hair he has the clothes he's got the same basket which uh through the documentary that we watched we found out that it was hard as hell to find uh identical wicker basket you wouldn't think that it would be hard to find a wicker basket especially in 1980s new york but yeah and i i also wonder you know we had mentioned beverly bonner earlier i wonder if that's why she's only credited as neighbor too that really both of them are still from that basket case universe ah yeah it makes you wonder there's got to be a reason why they didn't name them that but you know who knows but it's all in the eye of the beholder. That's the great thing about film. If they don't explain it to you, it's all, all you know, left up to your own interpretation. So in my mind, it's Dwayne and it's Casey from Basket Case because it's the world of Hen and Lotters, much like, uh, you know, a Tarantino verse or the Smith Askew universe. It's all connected mm-hmm. somehow. Absolutely. And wouldn't you say that this is probably the the weirdest death scene i mean maybe not the weirdest death scene but the most uncomfortable death scene because let's face it Dwayne is sitting there across from him we'll just say kevin van hentenreck is he's just giving it a, a weird dirty look not dirty look but this uncomfortable glance at brian brian's just staring him down and even Dwayne is just like yep i'm gonna tip the fuck out of here stage left and he leaves and the couple of other people that are on this subway car aren't paying much attention to Brian and Barbara. Brian eventually grabs a hold of Barbara, kisses her, and you know what's happening. Elmer is eating her brains through, he's, you know, basically deep-throating Barbara through Brian's mouth and eating her brains, if if that's the correct way of describing it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the other subway passengers are just saying this this is just a couple that's making out. Um, and so they don't, I don't think they realize quite the peril that she's in that moment. But then even after Aylmer has killed her and she's just passed out on the bench in the subway, there's just no, no care, no concern, anything from any of the other subway goers. They're just like, ah, eh, somebody else passed out. It's fine. Just leave them. Yeah. They don't even like really pay any attention that Brian got up and left and she's just kind of laying there passed out after they were got done making out they're just like oh hum yeah yeah new york city but my thought is this is how the hell did almer even fit in brian's throat without like suffocating him to death i mean i know this movie's not big on science but like how <laughs> how, how did that happen oh that's a good question you maybe know, he uh, was just <laughs> just lodged in a certain way that 
maybe his head was more in his mouth and just the tail was running down his throat or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. giggity, giggity, science. Giggity. He science scienced it. <laughs> yeah, I went Sharknado science on this and tried to get them to explain something that there's no possible way to explain. Yep, yep, it, it is one of those moments where you just go bullshit, but there's, <laughs> you know, if, if you I mean, say we, that once during a movie like this, you say it a hundred times, right? I mean, we did mention at one point earlier that, you know, Elmer and Brian are kind of becoming more symbiotic and kind of coming in to be one with each other. Maybe he's just transforming his tongue or another body part and using him that way. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe just Brian doesn't have a gag reflex. Ow. Just saying. <laughs> you know. Ow, ow. That's how he got Barbara to begin with. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He he could do some tricks. He could hold his breath <laughs> for a long, long time. <laughs> uh, we're dirty, dirty people, folks, but get used to it. Um, I'll I'll let you take the reins on this one if you want, dear, because this leads into the the ending. I mean, it pretty much from from th- this point, uh, we, we get to the final confrontation where Brian ends up back at his apartment because that's where he always goes back to. That's his, 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 you know, he goes back to his home base. And after I get this quick introduction, I'll let you take the reins. But Martha and Morris show up and basically they fuck up everything. They, they fuck up the plans. They're, they want to take uh, Elmer back from... Brian, obviously, and they're looking as horrible and as zombie-like as you possibly could without themselves being brain eaters. But you know, what's your, what's your thought thoughts on this one? Like how they come in at the end to basically kind of throw a monkey wrench into Elmer's and Brian's plans? Yeah, I mean, so I think at this point, Morris and Martha are just so desperate they feel like they really have no other choice, and so at this point, they just hold Brian at gunpoint. Um, in order to get Elmer back. Um, and I think they feel like at desperate times call for desperate measures. And this is really the only upper hand they feel like they could have. Um, you know, they're they're two middle-aged, older couple. Um, and they're trying to work with Brian, who is obviously a lot younger, a lot fitter. And now that they've got Elmer's juice running through his, his veins, they know that there's really no way that they're going to be able to compete. And so they hold this gun on him to try and get Elmer back. But unfortunately, it really, really kind of backfires. And Elmer is aware that if he goes back with that middle-aged couple, he's going to get fed those cow brains again. And he knows how weak he was on that or kind of being fed with that diet. And so there's no way he's going to go back to being that hostage. So he kind of Elmer fights back and ends up killing them both throughout that process. Or at least you think that he kills him both. Yeah, he makes quick work out of Martha. He he burrows straight. She cradles him like a little baby for a few seconds, then boom, he goes right for the brain again. Yep. So at this point, you think Morris is still pretty dead as well, Um, and Elmer decides that he's going to feed on Brian to give him his next dosage. When Morris, kind of who's still alive, comes back and just fiercely grabs Elmer um, and just squeezes, just squeezes the living hell out of him. Um, but while he's doing that, Elmer is still infusing the juice into Brian's neck. And really, I think what we see is just an overdose of his juice going into Brian's brain at that point. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, he's just, you know, instead of giving him a normal dosage, he's given him like a hundred times the dosage because he's been, you know, he's lodged in there. And Morris has got a hold of him to the point where he's 
basically strangling uh, and crushing um, Elmer to death, I guess is what it's, mm-hmm. they're supposed to be doing. And, you know, because, it, you know, when he when Elmer was feeding on Morrissey, it only kind of halfway finished eating on his brain. And Brian was just like, I really need a dose right now. I can't handle this. I'm going to throw up. And really, that's the, the point where uh, the, the, where the end of the movie kind of comes into play, because if Brian hadn't in, interrupted Elmer during his feeding and just let him finish on Morris. I wouldn't say so much everything would have been all right, but they most certainly wouldn't have, it wouldn't have ended the way that it did, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can tell when Aylmer is is kind of getting squeezed on the back of Brian's neck there, you can tell Brian is just in severe agony. This This overdose is just really not a comfortable or pleasant experience for him at this point. You could just tell it's just sheer agony. Yeah, pretty much everything about the the injection of the brain juice at this point is this pure agony. Everything, because Brian, uh, you know, there's there's scream queens and then there's scream kings. Brian Rick Hurst as Brian has a great scream. Like when he screams in pain, you feel it. It probably led him well on his um, General Hospital and Guiding Lights career long afterwards. Well, yeah, because, God, he did have, we never did touch base on that, but, like, you know, this was Rick's first film, you know, its first feature film, and right within, you know, the next year, he went on to doing, you know, Guiding Light, Bold and the Beautiful, and a couple of others I can't remember right now. General Hospital and Young and the Restless. So he became quite the soap opera king. I was trying to count the number of episodes that he was on. It was like 200 of this show, 600 of that show, 50 on this show. Like he has probably got somewhere close to a thousand episodes of like daytime soap opera TV under his belt. Yeah, I know. Like I I had looked him up to, he had done like 16 years of general hospital or something ridiculous like that. Um, That, you know, when you think of how frequently those episodes are aired, that's just a monstrosity amount of episodes he's done. I just can't imagine how many hundreds of hours in front of the camera he's got thousands of hours. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, the the Scream King yells certainly would do well for the agony you experience in a soap opera. (laughs) Yeah, hell, that would be just the kind of agony you would get from me just having to watch a soap opera. (laughs) But uh, Brian is now, you know, uh, Elmer is now crushed. He's laying on uh, on the alleyway floor. He's just writhing coughing, sputtering. Almer is at this point pretty much dead. He, you know, is this a pile of, he's just a a blue dick turd in a pile of of bloody goo. And, but Brian is now in total overdose mode. His head is starting to bulge. There's a, a point on his forehead that is starting to like bubble and balloon. And just from the screams of agony that he's going through, you can tell this ain't going to be good. This is this is possibly going to end almost like scanners. Somebody's head's going to blow the fuck up. Oh, yeah. It's it's very obvious that this is all coming to a head very soon. <laughs> Unintended. Ah, waka, waka, waka. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, so he makes he makes his way back up to the apartment. He's still got the, the gun that he got from uh, Morris tucked in his belt. He makes it into his room. He pushes past Mike, locks himself, barricades himself in the room while the police are showing up outside with witnesses or, you know, pointing at everything that's going on. And his head is starting to ooze blue goo from every pore. 
it's coming from his ears, his mouth, it's pouring from splits in his head where the it's, it's starting to, to bulge out. So he takes the gun, he's putting it towards his head, it cuts away, you hear a gunshot. And I, 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 just, I love the cutaway. Usually I always like, oh God, they cut away, they couldn't show it. But no, it, the, the reveal here is so just, it's so great. Uh, you know, they're just showing the outside of the apartment building. The bright light is sh- kind of shining. You don't really know what's happening. And uh, it, it's, it's hard hard for me to describe what happens to Brian from here. What what do you, how would you describe the, his <laughs> traumatic, traumatic, uh, sorry, <laughs> I can't talk. Me talk, me words. <laughs> the traumatic head wound that he has. Yeah, I mean, I think how I interpreted the end of the scene is, you know, so so I guess what I should say first is, you know, what we see is, you know, the police burst in on Brian and they see that he's not dead from his gunshot. But now there's just this glowing hole in his head um, from where that gunshot wound was. So I think kind of how I interpreted this was the fact that because he had been using Elmer's juice for so long that it probably literally changed his brain chemistry and so whatever was helping to keep Aylmer alive through the centuries is now doing something to his brain to help at least keep him upright and functional, even after that significant of a gunshot wound. Yeah, because when I w- was younger, I always thought to myself, oh, Brian became something else and Brian lived. Like, I always thought Brian lived through this traumatic av- event because this hole is a, a big softball-sized hole in the middle of his head that's just radiating this bright as lightning you know sunfire light coming out of his head mm. but he's just he's not really there you know he, he's there but he's just kind of staring off with a thousand yard stare off into nothing kind of gingerly touching his head like 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 he finally relieved all the pressure but i don't think his 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 you know he was dead but i don't think his body had kind of caught up to the fact if that makes sense yeah i think he was still you know because my thought of it would be too is you know Elmer always injected his goo into the brain stem and so the brain stem is typically the part of the brain that keeps kind of the basic functioning going whereas you know the the kind of the hole in his head might have been affecting more of like the higher functioning or kind of higher order parts of the brain and so he might still actually be like breathing and being able to do kind of basic movements based off of keeping that juice alive there. But, you know, any kind of higher order thinking is probably out the window for him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think Brian was done for. And I think it also bears mentioning for everybody that doesn't know at home, uh, Patty is a clinical psychologist, so she knows all about these <laughs> brain terms and, and things that I'm letting her take the reins on in a few of these because I don't know this shit. At all. <laughs> this is this is uh, was a good pick for our our first movie together, considering how much it has to do with the brain, which is your area of expertise. Probably why well, I love it so much. Yeah, yeah, uh, I would imagine so. But so we get off in the and the ending with a light show. That's how we're we're sent off. You know, we're one last uh, trippy psychedelic scene, and that is the end of our film. Uh, so everybody is pretty much dead. The only one that the, uh, the story who gets out alive is Mike. Uh, 
he's kind of a douchebag. He's one of the few characters in the movie that I didn't like. So I thought to myself, you know, always think to myself, this is the one time where the the guy you're almost kind of like, yeah, I don't care if he dies. He kind of he's kind of a douchebag. He deserves it. He's the only one that makes it. Brian's dead. Barbara's dead. Morris and Martha are, de- are dead. And unfortunately, our little horrific hero, so to speak, Elmer is dead. And we never got a sequel. Uh, we probably never will because uh, I don't think Hen and Lauder is big on doing sequels, especially after the the Basket Case trilogy. We'll get into that at another time. But I would love to see another tale about another version of Elmer that's out there. You know, uh, would, would be great. But you know me, I'm I'm more of a sequel guy. I know that uh, that you're not so much big on sequels, but I would love to see another one. I like sequels. Um... I, I I would rather see a sequel than a remake because I would rather have something yes. that at least has some originality to it than just the remake of an old story. Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I think it would have to be some kind of prequel. I think it would be kind of neat to follow Aylmer through the Crusades or, you know, some of those old ancient times and see kind of how he affected them then and kind of made his way to New York City. Yeah, that would be a good prequel tale, like how yeah. he cross from world war ii you know germany over there to to america after post world war ii that would be a great origin yeah. story but never know maybe we'll get one i mean they made a sequel to the car 40 some odd years afterwards uh, and we might get it's only been you know uh what 32 years for um uh brain damage so, so we might get it it's a possibility there's, still <laughs> there's, there's slim chance slim chance well, we have exhausted about every resource we could in uh, talking about brain damage and Frank Henenlotter. I w- will have to uh, mention one thing that I we glossed over when talking about the punk scene. The band that plays is a very cool old punk band called the Swimming Pool Cues. And they their song that they're playing is called Corruption. It's a great little single. They put out five al- albums. I think they formed in the late 70s, but... Um, if you haven't heard of their music, I would seek it out. It's a it's good old school punk rock. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think you had, when I saw that you were doing some research for it, you had even done some looking and seen that they were still playing up until recently, too. Yeah, I think I found uh, some live videos from 2011, 2013, uh, maybe 2015, but yeah, they're still playing. They albeit look so much different. You wouldn't know it was uh, some of the same band members, but they still got it. They still built out a good tune. As they say, uh, good old punk rockers, they, you know, they still go out and party. They just stand more towards the back anymore. <laughs> well, speaking of that punk club, so one of one of my most favorite things to do when watching movies like this is to look at some of just the crazy character names that are given. Um, and this one had a couple that I really enjoyed. Um, so for, and most of them fell kind of in that club scene. So we talked about the name of the club was actually club hell. Um, one of the characters is just called blonde in hell, um, which I thought (laughs) was kind of appropriate, um, along with like mohawked punk and zoned out club goer. So I, I I always like when, when movies will give, Better than just like Club Goer 1, Club Goer 2. I, I appreciate movies that will have just random adjectives given to their characters. I enjoy that too. It's, it's better than just like punk number one, punk number two, number three. You know, because you're not yeah. inevitably 
inevitably you get you know the different characters like that one of my favorites was the toilet victim he's not not known as anything else besides toilet victim toilet victim yep (laughs) well do you think we ought to give our final uh summaries and rate and review this bad boy sure we're gonna rate the film and then rate the the drink or concoction that we made to go with the film. So I'm going to rate uh, brain damage, and then I'm going to rate our Elmer's juice drink. Um, I think you already know probably I'm going to come in pretty high on this film. I love everything about it. I love Hennenlotter's style. He has a very distinct directing style and writing style, and everything about him is very distinct. Uh I just love everything about it. I love the crazy characters. I love the whole idea that it's basically a big euphemism for uh, drug addiction. And it's very well played. The effects, most of them, a good 95% of them. Here it is, you know, 2020, and this movie came out in 1988. So you're talking 32 years later. A lot of the effects hold up very, very well. And most of them were, you know, there was a lot of optical effects with the hallucinogenic scenes, but a lot of the effects are done very practical. And I appreciate that. I I love effects driven movies when they're practical effects and not so much CGI. And I love the characters. I love the cameos. Uh, I just love everything about this movie. It's hard to even give it a 10 out of 10. Um, There's very few movies that I give 10s, but you know, I want to almost give this film an 11. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a 10 out of 10. Because I love Aylmer. Uh, he's a great horror movie villain. And that's the most, uh, th- th- that's what I look for in a horror movie. I want a memorable villain. And anybody that could see this movie and say that they wouldn't remember Aylmer is either not paying attention or they're lying. So there's that. Put <laughs> El- El- this way brain damage, 10 out of 10. Aylmer is a horror movie villain, 11 out of 10. Now, <laughs> on to. Yeah. On to Elmer's Juice. Um, I thought it was very good. You know, I'm kind of weird about mixing sweet things with my alcoholic beverages. Uh, you know, so it, it, I was I was kind of, you know, on the on the on the line on the edge about whether I was going to like it. But, man, I took that first sip and it was just so good. Uh, the whiskey mixed with the sour mix, the Sprite, the the juice box that we used, you know, and, and the blue Caraco, it's just a really well-rounded drink. Um, you know, I'm not, like I said, again, I'm not much for a sweet kind of drink like that when it comes to my alcoholic beverages, but it was, it was top notch, uh, movie 10 out of 10 drink, eight out of 10. All right. Um, so for me, like, I, I think I can echo a lot of the same sentiments you have for the movie. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a great crowd kind of movie. If you just want to put in something, get a couple drinks, smoke a couple smokes, whatever you've got, and just kind of turn your brain off and watch something just silly and mindless, mindless. I think this really does the trick. Um, yeah, Elmer is just a great bad guy. You know, with Zach really providing that voice, he really provides just a great presence on the screen um, and just creates not even so much like a a bad guy kind of persona. Um, but just this guy who is trying to get what he wants at all costs to whoever his victims are coming through. Um, and I really like that. Um, as, as Cam had mentioned, I am a clinical psychologist too. And so anything that has to do with brains, I'm kind of all about. And so that definitely helps the rating for me too. Um, (laughs) and so, 
I, I would probably give this one a nine for me. Um, it's still very high on my list. I, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy watching it. Um, you know, in terms of what I would like to see from it, um, you know, it does. I, I feel like Elmer's death was was a little lacking for me. I would, you know, yeah. I, I feel like you know, for being this big powerful thing that has survived over the centuries having him getting taken out just by a good squeeze seemed to be a little much for me that I wish they would have had kind of a bit more of a powerful ending for him. Um, but yeah, so solid nine on that. And then in terms of our Elmer's juice drink, um, I, I really like that. Um, it is something that I tend to like my drinks to be a little sweeter as opposed to um, more sour or in terms of, you know, more bitter or anything like that. And so for me, it was a nice mix. Um, I'm also, you know, my, my liquor of choice tends to be whiskey. And so having that Bushmills whiskey in there added really a nice flavor and kind of took out some of the extra sweetness for me. Um, and so I would give the drink, I'm going to give that a drink a 10 out of 10. It went down very smooth and delicious. So you would say that you could be easily addicted to Elmer's juice. Easily addicted to the Elmer's juice, straight into the brainstem right there. Yep. <laughs> Just inject that stuff straight into the brain. Yep. But once you have it, you're hooked, and that's it. You're you're done. You're done for. Yep. It, it's the end. <laughs> we know how I'm going out now. I'm just in a ray yep. of light. There you go. And speaking of the end, I think we're coming to the end of this episode. Uh, I hope you folks have had as much fun as I have, and I hope. Patty, you've had as much fun for this being your first ever podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun, and this was a great movie to break me in with. Well, you know, it, it was easy to get you to do it because, you know, I know people. <laughs> I know, you know I a know guy a who knows guy. a guy. Yeah, 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 exactly. I know a guy who knows a guy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this has been, been fun, and um, we can give you a little preview of the movie we're working on for our next episode. Attack of the Killer Donuts. I'm not sure exactly what kind of uh, drink or meal concoction we're going to come up with, but you can probably guess what it might be. But Attack of the Killer Donuts. Yeah, Attack of the Killer Donuts will be coming up next. And you have been listening to the Cinema Degenerations Creature Feature Dinner Theater. Thanks for joining us, folks. And not my blood. Part of my talent, Brian, is to spare you any unpleasantness. Yeah, but when it comes to blood in my underwear, I want to know how it got there. Well, it's no big deal. Nothing to get upset about. Came from that girl at the club. What girl? The girl whose brains I ate. What? The blood came from a girl whose brains I sucked out. You sucked out her brains? Yeah, right through her mouth. Is she dead? Of course she's dead. What, are you kidding? What are you telling me, that we killed someone last night? No, I don't! How about the Night Watchman? Remember him? The Night Watchman? Yeah. Sucked him dry in a junkyard. First night we went out. Oh, my God. Want to hear the details? No!